Welcome to The Immigrant Voice, where we delve into the intricate and constantly changing world of U.S. immigration law. I'm Lean Tran Layton, a U.S. immigration attorney with over a decade of experience, and I'm an immigrant myself. I'll be covering a variety of U.S. immigration law topics, and I'll also share real-life client stories and answer listener questions. Quick disclaimer, the information provided in this podcast is informational only and should not be taken as legal advice. With that said, let's dive into the fascinating and ever-changing world of U.S. immigration law. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me today. I'm actually really excited to be relaunching this podcast. I had started this podcast back toward the end of 2020, where I interviewed immigrants to the U.S. and got to hear their stories, and they were awesome. And then I had stopped doing the interviews because life, and now I'm relaunching, and I'm doing it in a different format where I'll be covering different immigration law topics, giving updates on different things that are happening within immigration law because it's always changing you know with each administration that comes in things will change and I thought well how can I continue to contribute to the knowledge out there about U.S. immigration law so I said well why not relaunch my podcast so here I am and I'm excited to be doing this podcast again. So to give you a little background about me so I immigrated to the U.S. with my parents and my older brother when I was a year old from Vietnam and we came straight to Utah and I grew up here went to school here and I still live here and I actually didn't know I wanted to be a lawyer until my very last year of college. I took a constitutional law class and I'll admit it was very hard in the beginning. I had no idea how to read case law and by the end of the semester though I ended up doing really well in the class so and that inspired me to go to law school and I also part of it was I had no idea what I was going to do after I graduated and I thought well law is interesting and it's a way to help people so that's how I ended up in law school. Now, I didn't know that I wanted to be an immigration attorney either. So some people will say, well, if you go to law school, should you know what you want to do? If you do, awesome, because then you can really focus and figure out what kind of classes you should take, maybe what kind of internships or jobs you can take that will give you more experience in that area of law. But I don't think that it's a requirement that you have to know, even in law school, exactly what kind of law that you want to do. So in 2009 is when I graduated law school and the economy was terrible, Uh, but I was working for a law firm at the time and I ended up getting laid off. It was not an immigration law. And so I was thinking, I have no idea what I'm going to do now. And I ended up calling an immigration attorney who I had helped in law school with some casework. And I said, hey, do you need any help? And she said yes. And we ended up forming a law firm together for about it and we were together for about a year and then we ended up going our separate ways but totally amicable I still talk to her to this day and she's an awesome colleague awesome immigration attorney but I ended up forming another firm with my current law partner and here we are today that was in 2010 toward the end of 2010 is when we started the current law firm so here we are today and I've had experience doing lots of different types of immigration cases but my focus has been family-based immigration U visas and VAWAs and employment-based immigration. So going back to my childhood, I had that immigrant experience. You know, obviously I'm an immigrant myself, even though I don't remember anything about my home country. But, you know, I grew up in an immigrant household. My parents, when they came here, they really didn't have any money, didn't speak any English, didn't really have much of a formal education, but they worked really hard to help us to get to where we are today. I will forever be grateful for that. You know, they always told us, work hard, and you can achieve anything that you want. So that's always stayed with me. And I actually had no idea, like I said, that I would be an immigration attorney. So things have come full circle where I'm now helping immigrants and their families. So it's a really cool thing. It's really cool to think about the people who helped my family come here 
and that's changed our family destiny forever and the privilege that I have now of being able to do that for other families is just a really cool feeling. Sometimes I think about when my parents came and how difficult it was for them where they didn't speak the language, didn't really understand the culture, and they had two young kids and they didn't have any money. So I just think about when I was in my 20s, what I was doing compared to what my parents had to do when they were in their 20s. And I just think I don't know how they did it because when I was in my 20s, I felt like I didn't know anything. My parents made a lot of sacrifices for us and I hope that they can look back and know that everything that they did was not in vain. So let's talk about immigration law now. And I wanted to basically give a quick overview of why it's important to understand and stay informed about immigration policies and laws because they're always changing. Whoever is in the administration definitely matters. Whoever is in Congress definitely matters. These all affect immigration laws and even whoever the governor is of the state. For example, recently Governor DeSantis of Florida passed a sweeping immigration law for that state that affects a lot of undocumented immigrants. So while there hasn't been any sweeping actual immigration reform where Congress has actually taken up the issue and made big changes with immigration, a lot of policy changes can happen. With immigration law and with all laws, they're always subject to interpretation. So when these policy changes happen, they happen in a way where the government tries to fit in the parameters of the law. Now, sometimes these policy changes are challenged. Like, for example, DACA is one of them. I feel like DACA is kind of always in the news in some way about whether or not it's going to get taken away or not. And during Obama's administration, he also tried to pass DAPA, which would have been for parents who came in undocumented where it's similar to DACA, but that got struck down by the court. So then that never happened. During the Trump administration, one of the things that his administration had implemented in regards to filing for a green card was that those who were filing for a green card had to show all this proof that they would be able to support themselves financially in the U.S. So the immigration wanted to see their credit reports, proof of their education, um, taxes, debt. They wanted to know all of this stuff. But then when Biden came in, he took that away. Although now there is a variation of that on the green card application now for those who are applying in the U.S. And that started in toward the end of December is when the new green card application was put into place where people will have to provide information about their assets and debt, income and their education. But the evidence that's required to show that isn't as much as it was during the Trump administration's policy. So immigration law is very much political. I don't think there's any way that you can say that it's not. But regardless of what side you fall on, I think most people can agree that our immigration laws need to change. Something needs to happen where it makes more sense. For as long as I've been an attorney, every time there's been a presidential election, the candidates always talk about doing some sort of sweeping immigration reform. But that hasn't really happened. Like I said, there's been a lot of policy changes But as far as sweeping immigration reform, that hasn't happened yet. So staying informed about these immigration policy changes is important because it affects the way that you apply for an immigration benefit or what documents you need to submit. So I'm just going to give a very general overview of the U.S. immigration process and the agencies that are involved. So if you want to petition for somebody to get a green card, it all starts with filing a petition with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, or USCIS. So generally, if somebody is not born here, then obviously they are not a citizen or a permanent resident, and they have to have somebody petition for them to immigrate to the U.S. to live here on a permanent basis. 
Now, there are some instances when people can self-petition to get a green card, but I won't be getting into detail with that. But generally speaking, you have to have a family member petition for you to be able to live in the U.S. permanently. Also, the general rule is that if you are not born in the U.S., then you are not a U.S. citizen. Again, there are instances where you can derive citizenship, even if you're born abroad, depending on if your parents are citizens, if only one parent is a citizen, and they meet certain requirements to basically pass on their citizenship to you. So if we're just talking about being able to come to the U.S. by somebody petitioning for you, there's two routes. You can go the family-based route or the employment-based route. So let's start with the family-based route. So with a family-based petition, like I said, you have to have a relative petition for you. So let's start with U.S. citizens. So U.S. citizens can petition for parents, spouses, children, regardless of age or marital status, and siblings. Green card holders can only petition for spouses and unmarried children under or over 21 years old. Sometimes I have people ask me, oh, what about my grandma? Can my grandma petition for me or can my aunt? No, it's not possible to have extended relatives petition for you. However, in certain circumstances, if your grandmother petitioned for your mom and you were able to be added as a beneficiary on your mom's petition, then in that scenario, you are eligible to get a green card. So let's talk briefly about the employment-based immigration process. So with that process, you can basically have an employer file a petition for a worker to permanently immigrate to the U.S. or to get a green card. And the worker does have to work for that employer upon getting the green card. Employers can petition for various types of workers. So they can petition for skilled workers um, or unskilled workers. The skilled workers category is going to be one that requires at least two years of experience in a particular type of field. Then there's also the other categories where the employer requires at least a bachelor's degree or at least a master's degree. And depending on you know the type of education and experience required, it's going to fall into what we call the EB3 category or EB2 category. So the EB2 category is going to be for jobs where the employer requires at least a bachelor's degree plus five years of progressive experience or it requires at least a master's degree. Another category is called the EB3 category. So for that category, there's different types of workers that can fall in that EB3 category. So one is where the position requires at least a bachelor's degree. A second one could be where the position requires at least two years of experience in a particular field. And then the third category within that EB3 category is for unskilled workers. So that's for workers where it doesn't require any type of experience. And those two categories, the EB2 and EB3, are the employment-based categories that I generally work with. Now let's talk about immigrant visas versus non-immigrant visas. So immigrant visas are for people who are immigrating to the U.S. on a permanent basis. So like if you're petitioning for a family member who is currently living in a different country, that family member will eventually go to the U.S. consulate to interview and get an immigrant visa in their passport to immigrate to the U.S. and then they'll get the green card mailed to them. So then there's a category called non-immigrant visas and non-immigrant visas are for people who are coming to the U.S. on a temporary basis for a specified reason. So, for example, a student visa is one of those, tourist visa, a work visa. So those are all examples of what non-immigrant visas are. And currently there are 34 different types of non-immigrant visas that a person can get to come to the U.S. temporarily. Now let's talk about the different agencies that are involved in the immigration process. So depending on what type of immigration benefit you're applying for, you're going to be dealing with different agencies. But let's just start with your typical family-based immigration and the agencies that are involved with that. So USCIS, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, they are the main agency that you would be dealing with in starting a family petition. 
So let's just give an example of a family petition where your family member is currently in the U.S. and eligible to apply for adjustment of status or to apply for a green card. So in that scenario, you're going to be just dealing with USCIS. So you file a petition with the USCIS. And again, depending on the situation, you can probably file for the work permit and green card application at the same time. And that's all going to go to USCIS. And USCIS will make the final decision on whether or not to approve that application. Now, let's say that your family member is abroad and you're here in the U.S. and you're petitioning for that family member who will eventually interview at the U.S. consulate. So in that scenario, there's going to basically be three different agencies that you would deal with. Now, the first one is USCIS. You do have to file the petition, which starts the process going. And then so it starts with USCIS. Once USCIS completes what they need to complete, they will then transfer the case to the National Visa Center or what I call the NVC. And at that stage, there are certain documents that the NVC needs. And once they receive all the documents they need, they will determine if they need anything else or if it's documentarily qualified, meaning that they have all the documents they need to then move on to the next step of the process. So once the NVC has everything they need, they will then work with the U.S. consulate abroad to schedule that interview for your relative to go to. And as I had mentioned earlier, once your relative goes to the consulate and if the consular officer reviews everything, looks everything looks good, the officer will approve your relative for an immigrant visa, which will be put in their passport and they use that to then enter the U.S. So going to employment-based immigration, depending on what kind of job it is, where the foreign worker is located, you're going to be dealing with different agencies. So generally speaking, you're always going to be dealing with the U.S. Department of Labor. After that, you're going to be dealing with USCIS. And then depending on where this foreign worker is, if the foreign worker is in the U.S., then similar to the family-based immigration process, you're basically going to be dealing with USCIS only where you the employer files a petition. And again, depending on the type of worker it is, where the worker is located, the country that the worker is from, they may or may not be able to then also file for the green card and work permit while waiting in the U.S. So in the case where the worker is in the U.S. and they are eligible to also file for the green card work permit at the same time, then they're only going to be dealing with USCIS. If the worker is abroad and will be processing at a U.S. consulate, then in that scenario, they're dealing with, like I said, the Department of Labor, generally USCIS always, and then the NBC, and then the U.S. consulate. So if you're about to file a petition for a family member and you don't know anything at all about the process, a good place to start would be USCIS.gov, their website, because it does give an overview. Now, of course, there's so much information out there as well, different websites, there's social media where you can learn about different things within immigration law. But I think the USCIS website is a good starting off point. All of the immigration forms can be found on USCIS.gov and don't ever pay for the actual forms because they're always free. But of course, there are filing fees involved, so you do have to be responsible for those, but never pay for the actual form. They're all free. Also, all of the forms on USCIS's website have instructions that come with the form, so you can take a look at those as well to understand better what types of documents are needed for the filing. Now, I know that the process can be still quite confusing because I don't feel like the USCIS website necessarily tells you everything that you need to know. And sometimes people think, well, it's just form filling. It's not. There's more to it than just form filling. You have to make sure that you're eligible for the benefit that you're applying for and also that you're filling out the forms correctly. And also making sure that you submit the required evidence that it's being asked for. 
in doing this for so long, I know that it's just not form filling. There's a lot more that goes into it. And you just have to make sure that you are eligible to apply for what you're applying for and you're submitting the proper documents. Some people feel like they can totally do that on their own. And some people want an attorney to help them out because they want it done correctly the first time. And they just don't want to waste the time of dealing with potential delays because certain things weren't filed correct. And also sometimes people want an attorney because it gives them some peace of mind where they can ask questions and they can have somebody to talk to about the process. I will say that generally with USCIS, if you do submit an application and certain things are missing or incomplete, generally USCIS will send you a letter asking for more evidence or to give you an opportunity to correct whatever it is that needs correcting. Now, I don't want to say that that's always the case. It's always good to submit everything up front, but sometimes with USCIS, they'll ask for additional documents that maybe you didn't anticipate or that you just didn't think were necessary. In those scenarios, generally speaking, USCIS will issue what's called a request for evidence letter, giving you an opportunity to send them the missing information they need to be able to proceed with the case. And sometimes they ask for additional evidence that may not have been required initially, but is now required. If you ever want to talk to USCIS, then you can call their customer service line. And a trick that I tell people to use to get a live agent is when you call a customer service line, it's a voice prompt system. So you have to say what you're calling for. So what you can say is make an appointment. And then the next thing you'll say is info pass. And that will get you to a live agent, even though that's not what you're calling for. And just to give you some background, an info pass appointment is where you need to go to the local USCIS office in person for a reason. And those info pass appointments do need to be scheduled. You can't just walk into the local USCIS office. They won't see you if you do that. I will also give you a warning about calling the USCIS customer service line. You have to take what they say as hopefully true, but you probably want to verify as well. And it's happened to me many times where I've called the USCIS customer service line. I talked to somebody and I know that what they're telling me is not correct, but they're the only people that essentially I can call and I then have to verify. And sometimes what's happened as well is I have called and one agent will tell me one thing and then I'll call again with the same issue and another agent will tell me something different. I'll give you a recent example. So I had to help a client reschedule their fingerprint appointment. And I called the first time and said, hey, this client needs to get this re fingerprint appointment rescheduled. And the agent said that they would do it and that I would hear back within, I can't remember, but I think within a few weeks or something like that. And then the time passed and we didn't hear anything. And then I called again to see what happened. And then the agent told me that the first agent didn't put in the information correctly to get it rescheduled. So when you're calling the customer service line, sometimes the agents are very helpful and sometimes, unfortunately, they're not. And sometimes they actually give people wrong information. And I've had that happen where somebody has come to me and said, hey, I filed this with USCIS. And then I called and they told me this. And I was like, that's completely wrong what they told you and I know this is frustrating because I've been doing this for so long I can tell when the information they're giving me is incorrect but you know if you're doing this for the first time and you're doing it on your own if you call you're hoping that whatever information is given to you is correct 
So if you are doing this on your own and you feel like something just doesn't seem right or you're, you've called USCIS and again, what they're telling you just doesn't seem right, you can always talk to an immigration attorney and get their opinion to see if the information that you're getting from the USCIS is correct or not. So as you can tell, there's so many different moving parts with immigration and so many different agencies that can be involved in the process. And sometimes it can be overwhelming and it's hard to understand kind of how it all works together. And that's why I'm relaunching this podcast to talk more about the U.S. immigration law system because I'm barely scratching the surface with this first episode. I hope you'll join me for more and I'm excited to talk more in depth about these different U.S. immigration law topics. 